Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. I am so excited. This show is just taking a new direction, and every day when I interview somebody with a new story, I just cannot believe how this show is now per- going into so many more countries. We have an additional 20 countries, so we're now in 140 countries, and that means that this message of hope that my guests are giving is spreading worldwide. It is a message that I don't care where you're from, you need to hear. It's a message of hope to the hopeless, of hope to those who are hurting, of hope to just those who are interested or need to be encouraged. It is a message that we need that we live in a negative world. And with everything that is going on around us, it's so wonderful to hear stories from people who have possibly been where you have been or where you know somebody is going through something. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's financial loss or death of a loved one or rare disease that has you've just been diagnosed with or an educational problem or a problem with your spouse. Basically, this show has had someone on who has experienced something devastating, which has left them in a hopeless and helpless situation, and they have been able to turn their lives around. And so you understand my excitement, I'm sure, because it is so exciting to be able to share these stories. Today, I have somebody with me that has a quite a different story in that I have not interviewed someone with her story before and it is about birth mothers. This is also very dear to my heart because I am an adoptive mother and so I'm very anxious to hear what Angela Rushing is going to share today. She is a world traveler, she's an adventurer, she's a trust and freedom seeker a health and fitness enthusiast, and an animal advocate, and an author. Today she's going to share her life and, of course, her book, which is called The Birth Mother Roller Coaster, Navigating Through Guilt and Fear and Arriving at Self-Love and Completion. If that title doesn't encompass it all, I don't know what does. That tells the story of not only her book, her life, but what she's going to share today. Welcome, Angela. Oh, Carol, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And I just want to say that I'm thrilled to be here with you today, and I'm thrilled to be sharing 
what I can share with your listeners. And I love your mission and what your show is about. I just, I, I, I loved the way you described the mission of what you're doing. And it is true. We live in a negative world. And I think it's so easy to use that negative lens to see every part of our lives. And I see people do that. And I did it myself for many years. And ultimately, you know, the lives that we live are just a reflection of the choices that we make and also the the decisions that we make on how we view those choices. So ultimately, that means that we all have the power within us to live the lives that we want. And it really is ultimately up to us and no one else to make that decision. So thank you for, for putting this show together and for sharing this with your 140 countries. I think that's just <laughs> incredible. That is Wow, that's well, that's big. Thank you for that endorsement. Show's over. <laughs> Good. Our job is done. Our job is done, right? Yeah. Okay, the very first thing I need to ask you about, which this as soon as I saw this on your bio, I got so excited because my husband and I have rescued 30 dogs. Oh my gosh. And so and we the ones that we kept. So I need to hear tell me your story about you being an animal advocate. Okay. Well, I grew up in Louisiana in a, a kind of a small-ish city, and I was, uh, I am an only child. Uh, I do have an older half-brother and half-sister, but I was raised in a family as an only child. So I had a lot of alone time, and we always, always, always had a dog, at least one dog. And frequently, my father would find dogs at the golf course, and he would bring them home, you know, strays, and my mother would get so mad, but she would be in love with those dogs within a few days. But I always, always felt connected to animals and to nature, probably because, you know, I was an only child. But there's something about animals that uh, it's just they have my heart. And and so I, I've always kept that with me. I've always had some type of animal in my life. I have my dog Gypsy is under my desk right now <laughs> taking a nap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, what, kind, uh, what kind of dog? She's a poodle terrier combo, and I like to say that she has a little bit of devil in her because that keeps her, you know, a little bit exciting. So she's just the love of my life. She's seven years old, and she's all of my dogs have been rescues, but I just, you know, animals are near and dear to my heart, and I feel like they are far smarter than humans. You know, you hear people say, oh, that that's just a dog. That dog is just a dumb dog. You know, I mean, it It seems to me like animals are far smarter than most humans are, and they just have that innate ability to love unconditionally, and they're always happy, you know? So I live in Los Angeles now. There are endless animals in shelters and strays, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the overpopulation problem is huge here, as it is in most places, I think. So I, I'm near and dear, near and dear to my heart is an organization called the Animal Hope and Wellness Foundation, which oh, okay. um, is their, their mission, their accidental mission is, has become ending the dog meat trade in Asia. So the owner of that foundation goes undercover to Asia and he films what happens in the slaughterhouses and he poses as a meat trader and a meat buyer and he rescues literally hundreds of dogs every time he goes to Asia. So 
Um, it's just the overpopulation of animals is a very sad thing, but I think that we can, you know, again, it's up to, to us to make that decision. We can, we can end that. We can end the cruelty. If people spay and neuter their pets, then, uh, and stop buying pets from puppy mills, then we can definitely get a grip on this. But I'm an animal advocate through and through and through. Um, nothing means more to me than animals really. Um, and of course, I mean, I love people too, but (laughs) I love animals more than anything else you probably agree don't you you know I think we could do a whole show on this and I do that's a great idea and we could interview some animals we because... could... <laughs> well I, I have a friend who's an animal communicator well, so you, you know you can get in there too well yet last night on um, America's Got Talent an animal was put through it was a little poodle cross who could do math Oh. And it was absolutely amazing. They would give it math questions, and it would answer by barking. It was just, <laughs> so when you were sitting there talking about how animals are smarty, I'm going, uh-huh, mm-hmm. you know, uh-huh. Sometimes I have trouble with math, you know. <laughs> Me too. Anyway, okay, well, back to the subject at hand, which is going to be not quite as light as this one, but nonetheless, well, that one wasn't really either, if you consider the the demise of so many of these animals, and I know that your heart just aches just as mine does, so I, I totally, I totally get it. Let's start with your childhood and okay. going into your teens, and tell us about that, Angela. Well, as I mentioned, I was born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, and that's about a 250,000 population. And I'm 53 years old. So I was, you know, raised in the 60s and 70s there and part of the 80s. And I, you know, here's what I want to clarify. I used to say that I had a really bad childhood. I've changed that a little bit because of what I said before about us having the the capability to form our lives Mm -hmm. any way we want. And I I look at my life compared to some people, and I had a great childhood. But the bottom line is it was a lonely childhood. You know, I was an only child. I was super creative. I was very cerebral. um, And I I really retreated into... um, the arts and writing and drawing as a way to express myself. My father was an alcoholic and he was at times an abusive alcoholic. He wasn't the happy drunk. He was the angry mean drunk. And my mother worked all the time. So my father did kind of odd jobs and my mother made the stable income for the house. So there was a lot of time that I was left alone. I was a latchkey kid from the time I was about nine. The good part about that was that we lived next door to my maternal grandparents. So I had a place to go, but I also enjoyed spending time alone. You know, it allowed me to mm-hmm. escape from that anger and that drunken rage that often my father would fall into. So I I really learned how to spend time alone, which has been a a huge gift to me in my mm-hmm. life. You know, I don't get bored yes. ever. And I don't find myself attaching to people just because I don't want to be alone. So I, again, I just, I say, I do know there are, there are two ways to see things, you know, um, being a loner is, is a great thing in my opinion. You know, some people may see that as being lonely and scary, but I, I find it to be a really, uh, a great tool to have. Alcoholism played a huge role in my childhood and learned how alcoholism affects me later in life. You know, I went to Al-Anon and lucky for me, I'm not an alcoholic and I'm not an addict. I don't have an addictive personality, but um, 
you know, alcoholism, it, it, it affects your life in different ways. So I don't like loud noises. I don't like people arguing, which can sometimes manifest in my world as I don't like to start arguments. You know, I don't like confrontation. Sometimes I won't speak up when something's not really good for me. So I've had to learn the tools, you know, to deal with the effects of alcoholism in my life. And my mother was actually the breadwinner in the family. And my mother was, you know, she played her role in that too. My mother was extremely codependent. She's She was very passive aggressive. Um, I think she was there was a, a hint of, I don't want to say jealousy, but my mother always seemed to be challenged and irritated by me. You know, she had to work. And mm. I remember her saying things like, well, I don't get to have anything nice because I have to work. You know, oh. I don't, I have to take care of the family, so I don't get to do anything I want to do. So I, it just... You know, I don't want to paint my parents as bad people because they really did what everyone else does. They did the best that they could with what they were given. Um, it took me a long time to figure that out and a long time to not be angry about my childhood. And I think that, you know, again, it goes back to, I think as children, you know, we just assume that we have the right to have everything be perfect or Maybe that's an adult assumption. I don't know. But, but you know, the truth is nothing is perfect. And if we can see the imperfections as an opportunity to learn and grow, then, you know, we can actually make those positive instead of negative. So that's what I've tried to do as an adult. You learn from your experience. Yes. If you're lucky. <laughs> if it's a negative experience, I mean, sometimes the lesson's even greater. So that's 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 an incredible way that you uh, worded that. I appreciate that, uh, Angela. Now, my husband and I adopted our son. I found his birth mother, and I started a relationship with her many years ago. I also felt very sad for her, and I realized how difficult that decision must have been, even though she was only 14 years old. Now, you mentioned that there is a lot of shame around the birth mother. I would like you to expound on that, please. Okay. Um, wow. That's a big one for yes, me. Yes. Um, now, when I became pregnant, I was 24 years old. Um, I was living away from, I was at, at the time living in Chicago and I was about to move to Los Angeles. Based on the childhood I had, I, I had a difficult relationship with my parents and they weren't the first people that I went to when I was in trouble or afraid. I discovered I was pregnant and I panicked because mainly of the, the childhood that I had, didn't make me really want to be a parent. Um, I had no skills. I had no connection to what healthy mother-child relationships mm -hmm. were. I, I, my mother worked from the time I was one week old, see? So there was no real maternal bonding there. Okay. So I didn't feel like a maternal person at all. So having a child was not something I really wanted to do, especially under duress with no support. So I decided... Uh, with the help of my older half-sister to look into open adoption. The shame for me, I, I mean, there is just inherent shame. Let's just be blunt here. Sure. There is nothing natural about a mother giving birth to a child and placing that child in someone else's care to never see them again. There's nothing natural about that. So just that alone is like uh, the foundation for just internal shame, you know, self-inflicted shame. Then when you couple that with, there's something, I don't know if you're familiar with a book by Nancy Verrier called The uh, Primal Wound. 
Are no. you familiar with that? Okay. The Primal Wound, it was a, a book written, I believe she, she wrote it as a thesis in 1993, but it presents that the Primal Wound develops when a mother and child are separated at birth or even shortly after birth, but it describes the effects of the adoption on the adoptee, meaning that that even those that are adopted at birth will retain the memories of the separation from their birth mothers on a cellular level and that that memory never, ever goes away. And it shows up in their lives in different ways. That is true for the mother as well, I believe. I mean, even though that book was written uh, focusing more on the feelings of the adoptee. But for me, having said that, my family situation Um, My mother, when I told her uh, about my situation over the phone, her first words were, of course, she judged me. She was angry with me. And her first words were, well, we are never going to speak of this again. We are going to pretend like this didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So what do you think that says to a person? Mm. You're, you're, You're horrible. I don't want anyone to know about this. You've made an embarrassment. Uh, you've embarrassed me. So, of course, I internalized all of that, even though I was angry. I was an angry teenager. I forgot to say that. Um, <laughs> I was a very angry teenager that acted out a lot, which is how I got into this predicament in the first place, which, you know, it all stems from low self-worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what this all stems from is low self-worth. So I definitely had uh, that. But after my mother told me that, I went about the business of getting an attorney, um, putting together this private adoption on my own in Los Angeles. I had just moved here. I didn't know anybody. I think I knew two or three people here, and they didn't know I was pregnant, see? So Mm -hmm. I was already forming the double life. I was forming that double life. I had moved to a new city consciously. I'm like, great. Nobody knows me here. I can, I can do this. I can get it out of the way. I can do what my mother said and never talk about it. And I can just pretend like it never happened and move on. Well, you know how effective that is. Mm -hmm. That never works. So the shame got built in there. And then at a certain point during my pregnancy, I had to uh, be put on bed rest, 24 seven bed rest. Well, I didn't know anyone here to take care of me. So the only option was for me to be hospitalized for five and a half weeks. I was in the hospital, um, which sounds horrible, but really it was a lot of fun because the nurses were great. I, I made the best of it. But at one point in there, I called my mother. Now, remember, I said my mm-hmm. mother was not the person that I ever turned to in crisis. She mm-hmm. was not, you know, she'd hate to hear this now, but I think she knows, you know, she was not my first source of comfort. Mm-hmm. But I was desperate. I called her and I said, you know, I'm in the hospital and I really want you to come see me. Will you come and see me? And she said no. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she said no. And she said, what would I tell people where I went? What would I tell them? So there again, there's another layer of shame, right? To to exponentially build on the, the beginning layers of shame. So to answer your question, um, there is built-in shame to being a birth mother. It is passed down from generation to generation. The older women that gave birth in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that were sent away to homes and their babies were taken from them, they were forced into adoptions. Those women, I see them all over Facebook now. I'm a member of many different birth mother support groups, and the older women are so damaged from this shame. And it's heartbreaking to see. And Unless that's dealt with at the core, 
that perpetuates. And there is a newer generation of, of adoption where the women still have shame, but it's not as secretive. But inherently, you know, we're we're told to keep our secrets and move on. And there's no healing that can happen when, when we adopt that thought process. You cannot heal when you're living a double life. I lived a double life for 20 years and I was the most damaged, wounded, unhappy, miserable person. And my freedom started when I met my daughter and I started to talk about my feelings and my situation. I'd like to just backtrack for a second. This is a question that just um, came up, and that is in hindsight, and also in regards to the various groups that you belong to for birth mothers, is there an organization or an adoption agency or or some kind of uh, group that helps women decide whether they should abort or adopt? That's a touchy subject. I'm glad you brought this up, Carol, because there is a lot of discussion around birth mother coercion. It's a big, big topic. And I don't really believe in that so much uh, because here, here's why. I believe in, I am pro-birth mother. I, I'll just say that. I am <laughs> pro-birth mother no matter what the birth mother decides. Whenever you get into... Uh, discussing and advising a birth mother on what she should do, it can be seen as coercion and it can come back to bite you later, which Mm. is what I'm witnessing. Um, It's really subtle, you know, and, and I was explaining this to a friend of mine last night that the adoption issue is so charged, so emotionally charged that everything is magnified. It's almost like you have to just be so careful what you say and do because, it is such a highly charged subject. So I would say there are many agencies that advise women on many different things. And there are religious groups that um, advise that are pro-family that try to talk these women out of adopting their children. You know, I'm not anti anything or pro anything. I'm just pro-birth mother. But the tricky thing with these groups is that Once a woman is already in this position, she's confused and she's scared and she's dealing with the primal wound factor of, you know, ripping, uh, of changing something that's just so biologically in us, you know. It's almost like playing God with your own life when Mm -hmm. you decide to place your baby. Um, That That's such a vulnerable, vulnerable place for her that when you get into trying to advise her on what to do, I think the best thing... That you can do. And the best thing that I see, what I wish um, more people would do is instill in that birth mother, look, I trust you. I trust that you know exactly what to do for yourself and for your baby. All I ask is for you to think long and hard about this. Make that decision which is best for you and best for your child. And then own it. Be solid in that decision. Because no matter what that decision is, there are haters out there that are that will, if you allow it, they will come in and attack you for the decision you've made. So you have to be able to almost be bulletproof, which I am now. Um, and I just wish that there was more of that. So, yes, there are groups that will try to... Um, you know, under the guise of being supportive and guiding, but they're really, there's usually an underlying agenda and sometimes it's financially motivated. I hate to say, but you know, sometimes adoption agencies will 
compensate birth mothers who have had a positive uh, adoption experience and utilize them to quote unquote, and I use this term loosely because this is what it's called, they are they are out there to recruit or coerce birth mothers that are kind of on the fence because there is a huge part of adoption that is a profit-based business. Right. Um, and this is a huge, the deeper I get into my own adoption story and sharing that, the more I learn about this kind of underbelly that it's a business too, you know, and in that, whenever there's money involved, you have different motives and people are motivated by money. And so it's a very, very, very sticky, tricky subject. And it's a slippery slope, the business of adoption. Now, you have been talking about previous to this, this question, you were talking about the shame aspect. Yes. What other emotions are do women go through because it's not just you we're talking about now in your own experience you're talking about a whole spectrum a whole very broad spectrum of of women right who have made this choice now I'm assuming that guilt is huge and fear Um, oh yes address a couple of uh, other ones and ones that we might not even be aware of of what the birth mom goes through I see, in addition to guilt and fear that you mentioned, um, regret, shame, uh, we talked about those, but anger, anger is a big one. And anger directed outwards and at oneself, yes. Um, A lot of these women feel cheated by the adoptive parents. They're promised things that Again, who knows why, if it's because of coercion or whatever, they're promised things that are not delivered upon to the degree to which they thought they would be. So they're angry. And that's a a big subject we can talk about, too. But, yeah, regret, anger. Um, You know, I experienced fear around my uh, reunion with my daughter. Uh, That fear was built on the shame. It was fear that I wasn't going to be enough for her because I had, quote unquote, given her away. But I I think anger is probably one of the bigger ones. And anger comes from um, fear and it comes from feeling like a victim. Uh, You know, it's misplaced victim type anger that goes back to these women feeling like they weren't able to honor their choices or or make an educated choice or somebody made the choice for them or somebody let them down by promising something they didn't deliver on. Um, But anger is a big one. What about positive emotion? That's good. That's that's what I like. Um, (laughs) It's harder to find, (laughs) sadly, which goes back to the reason you're doing this show. Um, positive emotions are, you know, women feel, they feel a sense of joy, you know, that they've given their children a chance at a better life, Mm -hmm. but it's harder to come up with the positive ones that I see. I mean, I can tell you what I feel about myself, but, um, I think that that's why this discussion is so pertinent now. Yes. Because the positive emotions are harder to find. We're not really trained to look for the positive. You know, as a human race, we're trained to find the problem That's right. and the exactly. negative. Exactly. You know, the ego mind wants to keep us in victim behavior because then we stay safe and we don't change anything. And finding the positive is is definitely a change. I would like to see more women feel like they, not even that their babies were given a better chance at a better life. And I use that term better carefully. Um, But I'd like for 
birth mothers to also see that they're giving themselves an opportunity to live a life that if and when they do meet their children in the future, they show up as complete people, you know, not wounded, not wounded, lacking women that had to give their babies to someone else to raise. But, you know, like I gave my child a chance at a better life so that I could now become a complete person and pursue my dreams and show up for that child as someone of real value that that child could be proud of. And what are your views about open versus closed adoption? All all adoptions were closed back in the day. And now there are many, many, many people working very hard to change the laws around closed adoptions. I do think that closed adoptions are problematic for lots of reasons because, you know, Lots of things used to be closed. People didn't like to talk about things. And I think the only way people really heal and the only way we come together as a people for for better change in the world in general is by connecting and communicating and, and working together. So a closed adoption, it keeps people in secrecy. It keeps people safe. It keeps people in their lies and in their double lives. But it also keeps people from knowing their genetic medical history um, which is huge now that we live in an age where medicine has made so many advances scientifically where we can find out if we're predisposed genetically for Alzheimer's, certain cancers, and, and on and on. I think mm-hmm. that's valuable information to have. Plus, an adoptee deserves, as a human, to know who they are, period. So, you know, anytime you get government deciding what's best for you as a human – There's trouble, I think. So I really am an advocate for open adoption. Now, having said that, there are also issues that have to be dealt with with anything that's groundbreaking and relatively new. Like my personal adoption was was open, but it was it was in 1989. So it was kind of in the beginning of open adoptions. Now there's something that I like to call Uber open adoptions, where the birth parents are actually in some cases, invited to participate in the raising of the child. And I think if everybody's on board with that, it can be great. However, you know, once again, being on the leading edge of something revolutionary like that, you've got to figure out the ground rules. And um, a lot of adoptive parents, I think, agree to that because they think it's going to make the difference between them getting a specific child or not. You know, we forget, too. I want to say this, there's a lot of shame and we're talking about the birth mother experience right now. And I know we'll move into the other side of it in a minute, but there's something called the adoption triad, which is the adoptee, the birth parents and the adoptive parents. Every single one of those legs of that three legged stool has shame because let's face it. Why is somebody adopting? It's either because they can't have children, maybe they don't want to, whatever the reason. But if a woman is unable to bear children, she is mourning the loss of a basic human function, a basic right as a woman is to have children, you know? So there's shame on all sides of it. The adoptees have shame because they were quote unquote given away, you know, they they were rejected in some way. You know, there's, there's, there are charged emotions in all of the triad. Very so, good point. Excellent, uh-huh. excellent point. Now that, that brings us to, you know, you take a, a woman or a, 
couple who are unable to have children and they have their shame, right? They have their emotions invested in that. They want a child. They want that child now. They may have been at it for four or five years. They may have had failed adoptions, failed international adoptions, whatever. Now they have an opportunity to get a baby and the birth mother wants to be a part of that baby's life moving forward. So are they going to say no or are they going to say yes and agree to something that they may not know what it really means and they're going to all feel it out as they go along and then frequently, you know, it ends up where the birth mother does not have healthy boundaries. I, I'm a big fan of languaging and I see a lot of times birth mothers referring to the baby still as my baby. Mm. You know, and I think that's a slippery slope, too, because personally for me, when I signed that paper, that baby wasn't my baby anymore, period. Um, And it's a hard pill to swallow for someone, especially if somebody has told them, guess what? You know, you don't you can place your baby for adoption and you can still be a part of that baby's life. That gives her almost a false hope and it gives her a sense of that that means forever. But it's up to the adoptive parents to decide, you know, they, they are the ones that adopt that baby and they don't always want to adopt the birth mother too. The open adoptions can be tricky, you know, and that's why when you asked me before about the agencies that might advise birth mothers, some agencies and some people and some advocates put, I believe, a false hope into the mind of the birth Mm -hmm. mother who might be on the fence, you know, and that could be a deciding factor for her. Well, you, you know, you don't want a place for adoption or you do, but think about this. If you do, you might find a family that will let you live two blocks away and come over and play once a week and you can go to the doctor visits. That's the part that now needs to be kind of lived through and worked out and boundaries need to be placed. And I think, I think anything that everybody agrees on can be good, but it's always going to have kind of a gray area. You know, the, it's like, it's like wearing Spanx, right? It's kind of like one size fits (laughs) all, but if it doesn't move and flex, it really doesn't fit all. That's funny. So, you know, everybody's got to be clear and I think boundaries have to be flexible and they have to be renegotiated on a regular basis. But ultimately, yes, open adoption is a better option in my opinion. Well, you certainly are are giving me a lot of food for thought too because that's why I mentioned in the beginning that I am an adoptive mother and I know that my son suffered rejection and still does to this day, but it's certainly helping me to gain understanding. So I trust that this broadcast will also help women like me just to get that understanding. So I thank you for those issues that you are bringing up. Now, you mentioned that during the years 2005 to 2007 were one of the lowest point in your life. Can you share why? Oh, yes, I can. And that was such a tough time. Um, I was a different person then. I was living a double life. I had done what I thought I was supposed to do, which was have my baby, place my baby, and move on, period. So I stuffed everything so deep in me. None of my friends knew that I was a birth mom. None of them. Um, Really? Yes, none of them. I was living a great life in Los Angeles. I, I was a hairdresser at and still am, a hairdresser at a very high-end salon. And I, on the outside, it looked like 
I had a great life. I had a huge circle of friends. I had successful business. I was traveling the world. I was having a great time. I was going to parties. I was having dinner parties. I was, you know, 2005 to 2007, I was in my, you know, early 40s. I was healthy and fit. I had a great life. I was (laughs) so miserable and broken and dead and empty on the inside. I couldn't even... I just was living a lie. I, I couldn't, I can't even really recognize that person now. Really? Um, yes. I was, you know, I said before I was never an alcoholic per se, but I would, I wouldn't, I, I was unable to socialize without alcohol because I didn't like myself. I didn't think I had anything of value to offer anyone. So I had to drink to want to be social, to feel like I could be fun. I experimented with drugs, um, cocaine, pot, everything in those days. And I was filling up a hole. I was trying to mask the shame and the, and the, I I didn't like myself at all. I I was angry. I was reactive. I was sarcastic. I was mean. And I'm kind of embarrassed, you know, I mean, of the person I was, I'm I'm glad that I was able to get through that. But the the years, those were the hardest years. And here's why my daughter was approaching her um, 18th birthday. She was, she was about, you know, those were like her 16 to 18 years. I had had zero contact, even though my adoption was quote unquote open, I didn't want contact. So I wanted to remember, you know, move on. She was living in the same city as me. And I found out later that we were within 20 or 30 feet of each other probably 100 times. And oh, it, my goodness. Yeah. I could tell stories. I, I would eat up this whole interview <laughs> with crazy stories about how we were under each other's noses so many times. But ultimately, the truth is that I knew. I, I, no, I didn't know. I didn't know if she was living. I didn't know if she had died. And that was killing me. And I also didn't know. If I even wanted to meet her, I felt Mm. like such a loser. I felt horrible about myself. I didn't think I had anything to offer her. So I was really suffering during those years. And because of that, nothing was working in my life. On the outside, it was all working. Everybody thought I had it going on. But on the Mm. inside, I was just miserable. So there was one day where I was in deep crisis. I was in a huge depression. And I'll never forget, it was a Tuesday. And my days off at the salon were Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And I was living in a house, uh, a rented house. And it was a Tuesday about 9 a.m. And I'm laying in my bed. And I had been up for a couple of hours. And I was sobbing. I was depressed. I hated my life. I was sobbing. And I was actually yelling at God. Okay? Yelling at God. Saying things that I cannot repeat here. But the worst of the worst. I was telling him, you know that you gave me this horrible life with these parents that didn't love me. You made me ashamed of myself. You, you know, on and on and on and on. I'm yelling. So I'm sure my neighbors heard me. (laughs) Yes. And I, you know, looked awful. My eyes were red. I was probably snot coming out my nose, everything. I'm yelling at God as loud as I can. And I looked up, I got out of my bed and I looked up at the sky and I put my finger to the, my left hand and I'm doing it right now. I put my pointed finger up to the sky and I looked up and I screamed. I'm going to leave some words out because they aren't suitable <laughs> for your listeners. But I said, you have never, ever, ever, ever cared about me or had my back. I hate my life 
And if you don't do something right now to prove to me that I am worth it and that I have a reason to be here, then I am done now today. And I meant that. I wanted to kill myself. And I was, you know, I'm kind of a chicken when it comes to that kind of thing. But I wanted to die. And I was really ready to die. And with that, I kind of, you know, got tired of crying and I got out of my bed and I walked through my little office to my kitchen and I noticed that the light on my landline was blinking, the message light. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, I have a message. Interesting. So I picked up the phone and it was a message from the receptionist at my hair salon who said, Angela, you know, I got in this morning and I got a a message from someone who says they're an old friend of yours and they're looking uh, to reach you. And oh, my she, goodness. You know, she said the name and it was the adoptive father of my daughter and they were looking for me. And I have chills right now as I tell this story. No kidding. Uh-huh. I looked up at the sky and I said, wow, you work fast. <laughs> <laughs> and that was when, Carol, I... It became abundantly clear to me that I had a mission here and that I was not to end my life, thankfully, and that I had better get it together and make myself suitable to carry out this mission. So that's when I really, uh, I've never been a really religious person, although I was raised, you know, Catholic. I like to say I'm kind of a reformed Catholic, but. I am a spiritual person, and that is when my spirituality was cemented into me, and I realized there is definitely someone or something or some universal force that is at work within all of us, and I asked for it, and so um, I made the decision to live that purpose at that moment. So that was 10 years ago, by the way. So what happened? Reluctantly called him. I was terrified. Again, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer, and he's a man that's... uh, very used to getting his way. And we agreed to have lunch and I met with him. And he told me that, um, first of all, remember I said that I didn't know if she was living or not living. I had sensed that there was a divorce and a death. And it turns out that her parents had gotten divorced when she was three and her mother had died when she was 14. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, she had cancer and I had kind of sensed that those things had happened. So I, you know, they, so she was, uh, my daughter was about to turn 18 and she had always wanted to meet her birth mother because they told her she was adopted from mm-hmm. the time she was young enough to understand or old enough to understand right, that. Right. And so she had always wanted to meet me and they made her wait till she was 18. And her father, I don't think really knew what to do with a teenage girl, honestly. <laughs> and I think the minute he thought, it was acceptable and he he wanted to meet me first to make sure I was okay, not crazy and yeah. well adjusted. And um, then he decided that she and I were going to meet and then I freaked out. I panicked and I tried to get out of it. I tried to back out. I did. And he wouldn't mm-hmm. return my phone calls. So wow, he kinda, what a wise kinda, man. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, my, my daughter and I met um, on April 7th of 2007. We met in a park in Los Angeles in Pacific Palisades, Palisades Park, right there by the ocean in in Santa Monica. And I was terrified. I walked up behind her and she turned around and looked at me and her face, I'll never forget it. She was like, oh my God, oh my God, 
you're you're not old you're (laughs) because I think she thought I was going to be some frumpy little southern Mm -hmm. we we met and we went and sat somewhere and we talked for three hours and one of the first things she said to me was this is one of the things that I'm so proud of with her and the people that raised her raised her so well I could not have chosen a better family for her I'm so happy that those people you know came into my life and her life but um she was raised with a lot of love, you know. She was raised with a huge extended family that love her very much. And she said to me, you know, I just want you to know that I had a great childhood, so I don't want you to feel bad about anything, you know. And that's just who she is. And that speaks to her and to the people that raised her. So, uh, you know, my situation is unique in that it was really, for the most part, very positive. And, um... A funny little thing is after she and I met and spent that three hours together, we got in the car. Actually, before we spent three hours together, we got in her father's car to drive to uh, a hotel where we sat and talked. And I looked down on the floorboard and I, I saw what I thought was my purse and it had a bra in it. And I'm like, what? Why is there a bra in my purse? She says, oh, that's my purse. We had the exact same <laughs> handbag in the exact same oh, color. Oh, my goodness. So wow. there's, there's nature versus nurture right there. I mean, we have wow. the same tendencies, the same fashion sense, the same everything. So, so are you still in connection with her? Yes, it's been 10 years. We, I, I think I've told her first off, I said, you know, for me, I, going back, you know, like I said, when I signed the adoption papers, I've always been a pretty logical person and I knew what I was doing. And I knew that that meant that I may never, ever see her again. Now, yes. I don't know. I, I, I shudder to think where I would be now if we hadn't met. Mm. I don't think I would be doing well. Honestly, I just, and that, I have to go back to that sometimes when I see the the hurt and the anger that exists in some birth moms that are out there. Because I speak from my experience, which is basically, you know, it was negative and challenging, but it's, it is positive. And if I didn't have this reunion, I may be one of those really wounded negative women. I probably would. And it would be much harder to sit there and say, oh, just see yourself differently or own your decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just don't want any of your listeners to think that I take that lightly because it is easy to take that lightly based on the position I'm in now. And I do understand that, you know, without that resolution, that presents a different challenge for a birth mother. It, it's like if you... You know, if if a child, if your child gets abducted and you never know if they're living or dying, I mean, it's it, it's got to be almost the same thing to not know. I do have a lot of compassion for those women that have not had a good reunion or a solid resolution. Now, let's uh, share with us how your book and your website uh, can help women, who the book is written for, uh, who will enjoy it, and I, do you offer a course online? So talk about now what you can give. Okay. Being creative. I am in the middle of developing and redeveloping everything at the moment. The first book that I wrote 
is the book that you mentioned called The Birth Mother Roller Coaster. It is available on Amazon Kindle. It's a short book that I wrote based on a talk that I gave last year at a conference in New Orleans, the National Council for Adoption Attorneys. And I gave a birth mother talk there. The purpose of that book was really mainly to start a conversation among birth mothers and to release some of the shame around the birth mother experience. Um, It's just my story. Most of it is kind of what we touched on here. But with that, I've also created a private Facebook group called the Healing Birth Moms Community Group, which again is about starting a dialogue. All of this is like a launching point for birth mothers um, because, you know, my goal is to help birth mothers release some of the shame so they can start a conversation without judging themselves. You know, a lot of the birth mother experience is about keeping your secret. So I wanted to tell my, my uncensored story of my childhood, what it was like in detail, you know, the, the drinking that my father participated in, the anger, the rage, and how that affected me and my decision making and um, the shame that came from that. And then how I worked through it, you know, and am still working through it. You know, all of this is healing to me too, by the way, you know. Yes. I'm healing myself in this process. And, and in doing that, um, I'm hoping that I can help other women, you know, start their own process. So um, I do some work with another lovely woman who has, um, uh, she already has her nonprofit in place and that's called Life After Placement and it's mm. lifeafterplacement.org. And my website basically is healingbirthmoms.com. And the Healing Birth Moms website was put together just as an umbrella website so that um, I can list my resources there. So I have got Life After Placement listed on my website as a resource for birth mothers to find opportunities for healing and connecting with other birth mothers. Um, Life After Placement is uh, a great resource because um, – What they do is uh, they are really active in changing legislation and allowing birth mother rights to be at the forefront. Um, You know, birth mothers do have rights, but because of the shame and the lack of communication and the, Mm. you know, and the unwillingness to kind of come out with it, some of them don't know their rights. Most of them don't. And most of them don't seek that information because they just don't. They don't want to talk about it. They want to move on. They want to ignore it. But birth mothers have rights. So Life After Placement is a great resource for these birth mothers to go where they can not only share their stories, but bigger than that, they can find help. They can find therapy. They can find um, therapists that will do um, counseling at a discounted rate for them. They can find resources for healing. Um, And we... um, there is actually an online support group through that website. And I am about to put together um, on a different day than she offers it a different birth mother support group. So okay, um, I'm working through that platform right now while I continue to develop my platform, which will tie right into hers because we all need to work together here. It's not about yes. having a million different, you know, places with the same resources. We need to all work together Um And so right now the Healing Birth Mom site is really just a place to kind of funnel information. So, so birth, birth mothers know where to go. If I find something great, it's going to be put on there. If I find a book I like, it's going to be put on there. And it's all about just funneling, um, people to the right information. So in conclusion, it's pretty hard to conclude all that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Is there anything that you haven't said already that you would like to, maybe that I didn't ask or that you forgot to share that you would like to share with the audience? Or Now, all, all of your links and everything will be put in the show notes, so people will be able to have very a variety of ways to contact you. So not to be concerned about that, but anything okay. else that you want to share in conclusion? I, yeah, I do. I want to, to really focus on, uh, for me, what really helped me was, and this is not an overnight process, a healing process, but I think as women, first of all, as women, secondly, as birth mothers, you know, we're, we're caretakers and we tend to forget about our own needs. And you know, that whole thing in the airplane about if you don't put your oxygen mask on first, you are of no good to anyone else. What helped me in the healing process is number one, I have healthy, you know, being healthy honoring the fact that God gave us these amazing bodies and minds. And and we have to be very careful what we put in there. I do not focus on negative things. I do not watch negative news. I do not watch anything negative on TV. And I, I stay away from anything that's um, catty, narcissistic, negative, okay. media, all mm-hmm. of that. I take care of my, my body and my spirit. Now, that has been a huge help to me. Um, I think you know, you can either be a victim or you can choose to live life, you know, and we are better served in the world and we serve the world better when we recognize our gifts and when we leave that victim behavior behind. So I say get counseling, exercise, eat well, sleep, do whatever you can do to honor your your being. And if you're religious, do that, spiritual, whatever. But we have to step step out of our victimhood and own our lives and, and understand that we are worth it. We are worth it. Every single one of us has something valuable, a gift to share with the world. And that's, to me, the biggest piece right there is going back to the foundation and understanding that we've got to step out of victimhood. We have to, you know, as corny as it sounds, love yourself, but love yourself and honor yourself and really take time to recognize the gifts that we actually do have to offer others and communicate. You know, nobody has a secret that is so horrible. I mean, we really don't. I I mean, sure, there are some people, you know, the Ted Bundys and the people, you know, like that. But, you know, this is a show about, about overcoming obstacles. And you cannot overcome an obstacle if you're living in victimhood. You just can't. You have to own it. You have to look at it and say, oh, well, I did that. So what? So I would say in conclusion, um, owning your stuff, knowing that you're worth it, taking care of your body and your spirit and your mind and connecting with others and allowing others then to see that they can open up to. And that's where the healing begins. Well, I feel like a repeat station because basically what you just said in conclusion is what I've been saying, you know, many times when I've interviewed people. And one of the things, too, that is my own motto, and that is don't be a victim, but be a victor. Because no matter what you have gone through, you can become victorious over it. And so that's essentially what you are saying is to change your focus, to change your your methods, to change whatever you need to change so that you don't go to the self-pity parties all the time. But realize that you can learn from this, you can draw from this, you can help others because you went through it. And that's exactly what you are doing is you are helping other women 
in particularly who have gone through this experience and how they can move forward, move ahead, and better themselves in the whole situation. So everything that you said here has been extremely close to my heart for uh, the obvious reasons, as we talked about, but also you can apply what you said to so many areas in our lives other than just being a birth mother. And it's how we approach and look at life. And you have an incredible attitude. And I'm so glad that the outcome of that one day when you had us on pins and needles, when you were (laughs) shouting up, you know, into the sky, and we knew that there had to be a good ending to that one. But nonetheless, I'm so glad that you shared that too and exposed you know that part of yourself because dealing with that anger is another thing that you did talk about and dealing with it and moving ahead again and not letting it eat you up because it would have destroyed you and many relationships I'm sure so thank you so much Angela this was marvelous I appreciate it definitely want to hear about your next book when it comes out and just connect women to you, to your groups, and I thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, Carol. This has been a huge part in my healing journey to being able to share my story with you and your listeners, and I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing and for the opportunity to allow me to share with you and your listeners. So it's been wonderful, and and it's been such a gift. Thank you, Angela. Goodbye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.